let's jump into uh, our sermon and topic for the evening. But before we begin to read our text, I'd like to get some feedback from you. I've been doing this um, occasionally as of late in the book of Romans that we've been studying. What did you learn last week or how did last week minister to you? Or maybe there was a nugget that you've been chewing on all week, digesting or has been, been working on the inside of you. So just shout it out wherever you're at. Um, what, did, what did you learn last week? Say it again. Different kinds of government. See, I can review what we went through last week. But two things happen when we do that. I'll get stuck in review and we'll just do that the whole service. Because there's a lot more there than what I went over, right? Uh, The other thing is, is you're your own best preacher. So when you say something, it sticks better. And so when you have to dig and begin to consider and think, okay, what did we learn last week? And and you begin to look and it was out of Romans 13. And um, it's just better when you're reminded and you say what it was. It'll stick better. church as a people group. So the fact that we're all interconnected as body and us being a local. Wonderful. All right. So now something funny to me just happened. I don't remember teaching any of that. But this is what the Spirit of the Lord will do. We can read a passage, common passage. I can teach and He'll bring things out of that to you that ministers one thing to one person and something different to the other person all from the same passage. Isn't God awesome? So what ministered to you? Yes. <laughs> that you're not alone and that we have the victory, right? The devil would just, he's, he's a liar, man, and he just loves to isolate and get you to think that you're alone and to divide. And, and a lot of times the way he'll do that is through strife, you know, try to get you into strife with your brother, your sister, your spouse, or a family member, or other church, uh, other people of the church. And to divide and isolate and separate. All right, what else? Yeah, the coals of fire. Yeah, there is a difference between obedience and submission. They're not the same. Yeah, you can disobey honorably. And you can also, and we talked about this, you can obey dishonorably, right? You, you You can obey and not submit at all. I mean... You just have to have children to figure that one out. I mean, I've done it, you know. Yes, about cursing. Now, for those of you that weren't here, you're going, what? You just have to go back and listen to it. Not cussing, that's right. Cursing. All right, let's go to Romans chapter 14. Actually, let's 13. Let's go 13 first, and I will read, starting in verse 8. Because it sets context of love for what we're going to look at in 14 and part of 15, I believe. Verse 8, Romans 13. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. 
For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Now this verse, verse 10, is what everything from chapter 14 and down through verse 7 of 15 all hinge upon those two verses. And these two verses are the crux of what he's going to teach through all of 14 and partway into 15. So let's just read those verses again. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify His desires. Welcome anyone, this is starting in chapter 14, welcome anyone who is weak in faith. But don't argue about disputed matters. Put Proverbs 13.10 up on the screen, please. Now, one thing that you need to keep in mind as we go through chapter 14, that this is primarily, chapter 14, the things we're going to look at are dealing about matters of conscience, not matters of the law or legalism. Okay? Matters of conscience. And... A legalistic person, you know, that's one of the most difficult bondages that a person can get into is legalism. And so we want to stay out of that on the same hand, preferring our brother or sister above ourselves. And so here he makes a statement, he, he goes, welcome. So be welcoming. Don't be excluding. But be welcoming anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. Now that implies that there are undisputable matters. If he makes a point, don't argue about disputable matters. Well, there are also matters that are settled. And that you should absolutely fight for. Right? That you should not back down off of. An example of this would be... Um, with circumcision. Well, let's say it this way. Paul didn't have a problem with circumcision. You can read this in some of his other letters. What he had a problem with was people teaching circumcision for salvation. That, he absolutely went to bat for. I mean, he went so far as to say, man, I wish they'd just go ahead and castrate themselves. I mean, that's pretty strong language. Because they were connecting it to salvation. Now, he didn't have that big of a deal with circumcision in and of itself because he ended up circumcising, who was it, Timothy, that went with them so as to not offend some people they were going to minister to. So he, he, he saw the difference. That there is a time to argue for something and then there's a time not to. And here, he's simply saying don't argue about disputed matters. Matters of opinion. Matters of conscience. Right? Not, they're not doctrinal issues. 
It's a matter of, of opinion. So here in Proverbs 10, or 13.10, it says, Arrogance leads to strife, to nothing but strife. Or pride, we could say, leads to, one translation says, Pride leads to nothing but arguments. Pride leads to arguments. So that is relevant to this verse that we're reading right here. Don't argue about disputed matters. You know, if I have an opinion one way and you have an opinion the other way, we can discuss it. But if it's going to cross over into argument where I have to be right and you have to be right and we begin to get into strife, we're both defeated. No one's winning on that, right? And so we don't want to get caught up in that. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything. Now remember, the people he's writing to are both Jew and Gentile in the Roman uh, city of Rome, in the church there. So they're believers, and so the people that would have come out of the Jewish culture, they would be of the opinion that there'd be a whole bunch of meats that you can't eat. There's different, I mean, bacon, for example, anything pork, or a lot of things from the sea. Um, It had to be certain kinds of fish, certain kinds of animal. There was a lot of, plus they had all these holy days that you either should or should not celebrate, and there was strict laws, Sabbath or not Sabbath, and, and on and on and on. There was all these things that they were coming into. And nowhere reading in, in this chapter are they arguing about whether you're saved or not on this thing. So it's a matter of opinion. So just That's why we call it a matter of conscience. So in verse 2 he says, One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. That always makes me laugh because it tells us what Paul thinks about vegetarians. They're weak. (laughs) Also, I find it funny. If you want to be a vegetarian, you go right ahead. You just eat all the broccoli you want. In fact, drive the prices up so high that we don't want to buy it anymore. I like broccoli when it's raw. I do. All right. While one who is weak eats only vegetables. Now he's referring to the... Who's, who is he calling weak? I mean, forget the, the vegetarian for a moment. <laughs> who is he calling weak? He's calling the religious person weak. The one who's religious minded. Because he's the one saying, no, we can't eat certain things. So he's just identifying him as, as the weak one. He's not making fun of him. See, the biggest... The, Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, and if I am, that's all right, because we're going to talk about it either way. A big thing with someone who has found liberty and walks in liberty is that they don't look down upon the person who has not found that liberty or, or the grace that they walk in. Because that's real easy for us to do on, you know, people that drive think you have to drive a horse and buggy. Right? Because, I mean, seriously, come on. How blind do you have to be to think you have to drive a horse and buggy? Right? And so we begin to look down on them, and we, that's pride. Right? Now, that's an extreme, a simple example, because we live here in Lancaster County. But we can make it be more close to home. You know, we can bring that to, especially over the last couple of years, people that wear masks. Right? What's wrong with them? Why do they have to wear a mask? You know, or vice versa. So don't allow your liberty to cause you to sit and look down your nose at someone who isn't walking in your liberty. Verse 3, one who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat. 
actually, let's make it a little more relevant to today. One who gets a vaccine must not look down on the one who does not get vaccinated, and the one who does not get vaccinated should not judge the one who does. God has accepted him. And just in case you wonder where I stand, I stand in the non-vaccinated crowd, in the organic crowd. I'm more vegetarian than you know. <laughs> no GMOs here. <clears throat> but the point is, is if someone believes that's what they need to do, then okay. I'm not going to sit in judgment of them and look down my nose and think they're less than. We might discuss it, but I'm not going to argue with them. Verse 4. Who are you to judge another's household servant? You know, that one is, I mean, he's just trying to make it really, we don't have servants like they did back then, but let's make it employees. You know, I don't sit and try to tell Barry and Debbie's employees how they should behave or not behave. They don't answer to me. Why would I do that? You know, I don't tell your employees what they should or shouldn't do. I'll tell my employees what they should or shouldn't do because they answer to me, but not someone else's, right? So mind your own business. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls. And he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. You know, God has the power to do that, doesn't he? Thank God for his, his grace, his abilities. <clears throat> One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. You know, with us meeting Saturday nights, that's one of the funny things that whenever I talk to strangers and invite them to our service and tell them we meet Saturday night, not Sunday morning, many times I can see the question mark inside their mind. They're not even voicing it. But why only Saturday? Are they Seventh-day Adventists? Do they think? And the funny thing is how many times people will say, well, that's the true Sabbath anyway. And so I laugh and say, well, no, we don't do it for that reason, you know, but we do it because that's what our landlord requested of us to do because we share our building and they use it Sunday morning. Oh, okay, okay. So whether it be Saturday, Sunday, Wednesday, Tuesday, whatever, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it, and he gives thanks to God. Put up verse 6 in the message translation. It's humorous. Verse 6 in the message. I think we have the message. Maybe not. The point is, is, don't be caught up on which day, which day you should or should not be. be uh. Here we go. What's important in all this is that you keep a holy day. Keep it for God's sake. If you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God and thank God for prime rib. <laughs> if you're a vegetarian, eat vegetables to the glory of God and thank God for broccoli. So that really, that really addresses the issue, right? If you're going to keep a day, keep it to the Lord. Whether it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or one of the others. Keep it unto the Lord and make sure that you're doing it to Him.
In fact, on the answer, or to answer the question of which day we should or shouldn't, or should we be religious about which day, let's look at some other scriptures. Put up um, Colossians 2. Let's go back to uh, a, a more accurate translation. Colossians 2, and look at verse 8. And then we'll look at 16 and 17 as well. So Colossians 2 verse 8 says this, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. So something other than Christ. Pointing at something other than Christ. Everyone say something other than Christ. Alright, look down at verse 14. So now here he's talking about how that Christ has forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, He erased the certificate of debt with His obligations that was against us and opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Him. Therefore, He's gone to all this great extent, so therefore, do this next thing. Don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or the Sabbath day. Don't let anyone judge you in regards to these things. Food, drink, festivals, holy days, cycles of the moon, Sabbath. Verse 17, these are, sh- these are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ or the body is Christ's. Those other things were a shadow, but one translation says, but the reality is in Christ. Let's say it this way. Which is better? The shadow or the, or the item casting the shadow? Let's say it this way. If we're getting ready to meet, and you come up around the corner, and the way the light is, sunlight's falling, you see my shadow on the floor. And now you come around the corner of the building, and now you see me standing there. Who in their right mind is going to get hung up on my shadow rather than on the real deal? The shadow represents the real thing. The, the food, the drink, the, the Sabbath day, the holy days, all those things point to Christ. And it would be really weird to fall down on the ground and try to hug my shadow instead of coming over to me who's real right here and give me a hug and say hello. Right? So keeping in mind what those things represented, they pointed to Christ. Look at 2 John verse 9. Here's another example. In fact, um, we'll go to several more on this, just making this point further. 2 John 9 says, Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. Or we could compare that to 1 Corinthians Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul made the statement. He said this, he said, Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. Don't go beyond what's written. Stick with what you know, what we have in the Word. Don't be making doctrines that aren't in Scripture. If we were going to put it in everyday English today. Galatians 4 is another example of this. I'll read that. Galatians 4, starting in uh, verse 8. 
In the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. They're things. Who wants to be enslaved? That sound like fun? Nope. But now, since you know God, or rather, have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. See, they weren't, it wasn't just a matter of opinion, but in the, to the Galatians, he was writing, and that was where the issue of circumcision came up, is people came in and were teaching them their salvation depended on those things. And he's like, man, this, this was a big deal to him. So don't place confidence in those kinds of things. Personal convictions are not the same as doctrinal truth. And allow other people to have a different opinions than you. All right, verse 7. And back in Romans 14, for none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Isn't that comforting? Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Man, that gives confidence. Confidence to us. Someone say, I belong to the Lord. Verse 9, Christ died and returned to life for this, that He might be Lord over both the dead and the living. I always pay attention when I read scriptures that talk about His purpose. This is the reason He came, to destroy the works of the devil. Here's why Christ came, to, to do what? To be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God or will confess to God. That's what, the word confess means to acknowledge openly, joyfully agree with, to profess. To acknowledge openly God. Verse 12, so then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now last week we had talked about government and four different types of government, right? There was the uh, self-government, and then there was family government, and there was church government and civil government. Well, right here's a scripture for self-government. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. You're going to have to answer for you, not for me. You'll have to answer for you, not your neighbor. Verse 13, therefore, therefore, here's why. Or because of that, we could say, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, on the flip side, there's something we're supposed to do. Decide never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Now, over the next number of verses, it talks uh, uh, repeatedly about stumbling or falling or, or a pitfall or being destroyed. And all of these things... It doesn't mean someone that is... Because some, some of the older translations use the word offended. Offended. And, but this is talking about someone who has fallen into sin. Based on what they experienced and what they did, they have fallen into apostasy. Okay? It's not just, just a... Uh, they didn't like something. 
Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in the way of a brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, isn't that a mouthful? Nothing, he says, is unclean of itself. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. This is what Paul is saying. He, he knows this. He's persuaded of it. Which means at one point he apparently didn't think so. But now he does. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one, it is unclean. So one believes it isn't. One believes it is. It truly isn't. But if you believe it is, not to you it is. Right? Let's go, because he's talking about eating meat, and we're going we're gonna to get more into that, but before we do that, in this passage, I want to go read somewhere else he talked about this. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 6, this was also something that Paul wrote, and he wrote it to Pastor Timothy. Now, the thing to recognize <clears throat> is that Paul was instructing a pastor on how he should teach his people. That's what the book of Timothy is. Now, generally we read Timothy as a letter to us, the individual. How we should operate and function and all of that. Because it's scripture, right? But context is that he was writing to a pastor that this is how he is supposed to shepherd his people. Romans was not written to a pastor or a leader. It was written to the individual of the church, right? To a group or a collection of people. So in Timothy, he says something different than what he says over here in Romans. In Timothy, he starts out by saying, he says, now the Spirit, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, deceiving spirits, those would be evil spirits, and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. So apparently these teachers, they knew better, but they had seared consciences and they're teaching teachings of demons. And here, here was um, what some of those teachings of devils were back then. Verse 3, they forbid marriage. They demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you, the pastor, Pastor Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. So back here in Romans 14 where we began reading, it says don't argue about disputed matters, matters of conscience. But here he is saying to the pastor that he needs to absolutely teach the truth because there's people teaching for doctrinal truth that you can't eat these things. So you need to teach them that yes, everything can be received and is good for if you receive it, it's sanctified. If you receive it with thanksgiving, it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. I don't know about you, but I've eaten some meals that we prayed twice over to make sure that thing was sanctified, right? But the point being is there is no food that's off limits, scripturally speaking. 
There is no food that's off limits, scripturally speaking. Now, if you say, well, you know, I think it's, it's more healthy to not eat pork. Okay, great. Don't eat pork. Leaves more bacon for the rest of us. But as for myself, right, I like bacon. And I'm grateful that it's sanctified by prayer and thanksgiving. But I'm not going to argue with you about it. Now, if you stand up and try to teach my people, the people that the Lord has set me to be a shepherd over, if you try to teach them that it's wrong, then we're going to have a conversation and I'm going to, I'm going to correct it, right? But if you want to, if you want to say, well, um, I, I don't think we should, so I'm not going to, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You, you follow what the Lord shows you. All right, speaking to the individual, he says in, in verse 14, chapter 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean to that one, it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Do not destroy someone by your liberty on what you allow or what you want to eat. And, and if you're with someone, we'll read this in a moment, but if you're with someone that you know that they don't think the person should eat this kind of stuff, don't just sit there and go, well, bless God, I have my liberties and I'm going to do it. Because you could be very harmful to them. And back in, in what I said earlier when we started in Romans 13, where he says love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. That's what this is talking about, is putting, preferring others above yourself. And the, the true question is, is your stomach your God? You know, is your stomach that important to you that you have to have something that someone else is going to be offended or hurt by? Wait until they're not with you. Then have it. Have two of them. I don't care. But we should place such a preference on each other that we would never do something to hurt one another. In, I'm not saying... You, okay, so let's talk about offense. The offense it talks about in this passage is not talking about, oh, well, they offended me, how dare they say that, blah, 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 blah. Those, you know, those kind of people, just stay away from them. Okay? You can be offended about anything that you want to be. Offense is a choice. Okay? You choose to be offended. And I, the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an experiment. The next time someone offends you and you voice the words, you say the words, that offends me. I want you to notice what happens on the inside the moment you say those words. The moment you give voice to it, that offense grows stronger. Boom, on the inside. It solidifies just like that. I've tried it. I know. I'm speaking from experience. But if you'll stand up and that thing that's trying to offend you, if you say, oh, that doesn't offend me, I don't offend easily, it starts to dissolve. Your words will work for you. And when you give way to offense, man, it immediately grows. So test it. The next time you catch yourself saying that, pay attention to what happens on the inside. I've been, I've been working to eradicate that kind of talk from my mouth. You know, it's not that important that you have something that would cause another person to stumble. 
in their conscience. That's what this is talking about. This is not talking about some uptight person that just is looking for something to be grumpy about. This is talking about causing someone to stumble because what you permit, they think is wrong. And so they think, well, so-and-so does it, and, and we look up to them. They're godly people, and since they do it, it must be okay. So I'm just going to override my conscience on this thing, and I'm going to do it too. And then before long, they're overriding their conscience on other things. And we've talked about this in Romans before. It doesn't mean their conscience is right, because your conscience can be trained wrong. But it is never good to override conscience. If you're going to adjust your conscience, do it according to the Word, not because I'm overriding things. Because now you get into a position where you get a hardened conscience, and you, now when it's the Lord that's there tapping on you, trying to get your attention, you're overriding it because, yeah, well, I'm used to ignoring that thing. So it's important that we not override conscience. It's also important that we allow room for other peoples and don't do anything that would cause them to feel like to sin against their conscience. Let's put it that way. Philippians 3, 18 and 20 say this, For I have often told you, and now say... Uh, actually, I want to go back and read in verse 16, starting in 16. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Live in the truth that we know in the truth that you know, in the light that you have. Walk in that light. I cannot walk in Scott's light or Elizabeth's light you know, or Jill's light. I can only walk in the light I have. In the same way for you. You can't walk in my revelation. Now, you may get revelation when I share revelation with you and vice versa, but you, it has to be revelation to you. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. So are you focused on earthly things, or are you focused on the good of your brother and sister? Even in, in correction, in rebuke. Because we all know that there's a place for rebuke, for correction, for um, all of that, right? Yet it always, always should be done for the good of the other person, not because they need to hear it. Because I can think of people that need to hear it. But they wouldn't be willing to hear it anyway. So now we're just going to get into pride and into strife and into arguments, Right? So if you're going to give a rebuke or a correction, do it because you care about that person and, and you want them to, co to come up in good things for their good. For if your brother or sister, verse 15, is hurt by what you eat, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. In 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul, in other places, he spoke very, very strongly about meat offered to idols and, and, and forbade it. In Acts, when they wrote to the Gentile believers, they told them not to eat that kind of meat. But Paul recognized there's actually nothing wrong with it, with the meat. But there was problems, other problems that came out of what was taking place in their culture and in their time. I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians 10, 23. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. He talks about this issue on Christian liberty and he quoted to them a statement that they were known for saying, everything is permissible, <clears throat> but not everything is beneficial. 
This is what Paul, Paul is bringing some, a twist to the statement or some correction to the statement that everything's permissible. Yeah, but not everything's beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. That's a whole lot more difficult than what we like to let on. It's a whole lot more difficult to put everybody in this room first above yourself than what we like to think. Because we get so used to Christianese language, right? We just know, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. But man, when it comes now down to our brothers and sisters and our spouse and people that we're with every day, there's where rubber hits the road. We can all hold the door for each other here in the back while we have on our Sunday go-to-meeting britches and smiles, right? But when you get together with your family and you haven't had coffee in the morning and they're trying to talk to you and you want to prefer others first, see, now it just became real. I can see by some of the knowing nods. And in case anyone gets the wrong idea here, I preach first to myself and you all get to listen in. Okay? Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience. So eat it, don't ask questions about it. Now, the way they did it back in their time and with a lot of the idol worship that was going on, they would, um, there was feasts at the temple that you could attend, and then there was a meat market at the temple that all the food that was offered to the idols, of course the idols didn't eat it. Right? So they didn't burn it to the idol, but they set it out for the idol to eat. Well, the idol didn't eat it, so now they need to do something with the meat. So they take it down to the market, and they would sell it for pennies on the dollar because, well, one, it had set out a little bit, right, and other things. But So they would sell it on the cheap. So people would come, and they would buy meat there because it was less expensive than just buying it down at the regular meat market. And so that's one of the things that he had to address And so he's just saying, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you, for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? In other words, don't just take your liberty and cause it to now be a point of contention and a point of judgment. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So that was what he had written to the Corinthian church. So back here in Romans, what he's writing to the Roman church, we can just take that and add that in. Let's look at verse 16. Therefore do not let your good be slandered for the kingdom of God. Now, whenever I see the word kingdom in my Bible, I like to draw a line, a slash between the word king and the word dumb. Kingdom. Because it's a, it's a two-part word and it means the king's domain. 
And so it reminds me, every time I read the word, the kingdom of God, the king's domain, it's his domain. It belongs to him, where his laws operate and where his principles stand, and, and it's not man's. So he says here, he says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, a right standing, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says this, For the kingdom, the king's domain, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Power. It's not a matter of talk, but of power. Here he says it's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not these physical things, but it's righteousness. Well, we know it's the right standing of God, the rightness of God. God considering you right. It's peace, His peace that passes all understanding, that will guard you and keep you. And it's joy, His joy. You know, the joy of the Lord is our strength is a scripture that we talk about and sing about. So righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You try to have any of those things outside of the Holy Spirit and you're talking about emotions and not true realities. Verse 18, whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then, let us pursue. Man, that means you're hunting it down. You're chasing it. You're putting forth effort. You're doing your utmost to go after what he says next. What promotes peace and what builds up one another? Now, you cannot read this with the eyes of sin. You can't read this saying, okay, so we have to promote peace and, um, and not, we have to put up and tolerate sin. That's not what he's saying. He's talking to brothers and sisters, people who are living godly lives. He's not saying that the church needs to throw open the doors to homosexual lifestyles or to adultery or to fornication or to all the other sins that are so rampant around us. That's not what he's saying, right? So don't mix that into this. He says, um, let us pursue what promotes peace. Well, if you truly want peace of God, you need to walk free of sin. So we need to have a pulpit that teaches what the Bible says is sin, that it's sin, right? We love everyone. But sin is sin, whether it's you, me, or the guy down the street. And what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean. But it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. So don't do something that causes someone to sin or to fall. You know, this is something that we, we don't come across so much eating the whole eating meat offered to idols today. But what would be more relevant to you and I is there's people that would really be offended if they saw one of you with a glass of wine or some other drink, alcoholic drink. You know, because there's people that even teach that, well, it's a sin to do those things. Now, personally, I think that's a doctrine of devils because it goes right against Scripture. And that's what the devil likes to do. He likes to teach what goes against Scripture. Because we can look at Scripture and we see that 
Wine was obviously not forbidden. What was forbidden was drunkenness, right? Drunkenness is... So don't argue with people about it, but as pastor, I will teach truth on it. You can certainly discuss it with your neighbor, but don't argue and don't fight about it. I'm not going to fight with other pastors on it. Hey, if they want to talk about it, let's talk, but I'm not going to get into strife with any other minister or shepherd over whether or not drinking wine is, is good or bad. Uh, to you, I, I I'll say it this way. Don't be drunk. Don't get drunk. You say, well, what's drunk? Well, when you alter your state of mind to where you make decisions that you would not make when you're sober, you're drunk. Don't do that. Don't do that. Scripture is very clear. People, there's a lot of scripturally illiterate great men and women of God on this subject. Okay? Um, Take, for example, one one of the arguments on this whole thing is if you, uh, the wine back then was not of the sort that would make you drunk. I see. Then how come did Paul tell them don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the Holy Spirit? Obviously it made you drunk else he wouldn't have warned against it. In fact, what's more, in 1 Corinthians 11 where they were having communion, they, had, they were getting together having communion getting drunk. So, so much for the wine that doesn't make people drunk. And he scolds them for it. But the, what's so glaringly obvious in that passage is he doesn't tell them, you guys know better than using alcoholic wine. Instead, he says, you guys know better than going to excess and putting yourself in front of your brother or sister. Don't you have homes to do this in? And then he proceeds to give them the correct way to do it. Never once says, oh, and stay away from wine. But gluttony was forbidden. Drunkenness was forbidden. Of course, one of my favorites is Jesus making wine for a bunch of drunk people at a wedding. That one's just ridiculous in my opinion. And in fact, I have questions for him when I, when I get to sit with him. Like, isn't that a bit of enablement there, Lord? I mean, yeah, when you read it and you look at the meanings of the words... They already had had too much, and then the second stuff came out, and they said, wow, this is better. And there's not a person on the planet that likes wine that will claim grape juice is better than wine. FYI. Okay? So, that doesn't fly. Okay. So, coming back to verse 21. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Take that into consideration before you just order a bottle of wine at your restaurant table. Who am I with? What, how, what, how might this affect them? And don't do anything to make them stumble. Verse 22, whatever you believe, this is key verse. In fact, I drew a key and pointed it at this verse in my margin of my Bible. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And everything that's not from faith is sin. In other words, you don't want to do something that it would be really stupid to take someone who has overcome an addiction to alcohol and put them in an environment where there's a bunch of alcohol. 
It wouldn't be putting them first. It wouldn't be building them up. It would be doing none of that. It'd just be dumb. Okay? Don't do that to people. And so, maybe you don't know the person's history. Okay. But my point is, is if you put them in a position where they go, okay, I'm going to override conscience. And, you know, I did promise the Lord I would never touch the stuff again. But because um, pastor's doing it, must be okay. So I'm going to have a little bit. And he causes himself to sin against the very vow he made to the Lord. Right? So that would not be wise. That would not be good. Now, this is going on into chapter 15. Now, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. Now, this verse is similar to verse 1 of 14. We who are strong have an obligation to bear. It means to lift up or to carry the weakness of those without strength and not to please ourselves. It doesn't say the critical. It doesn't say the fault finders. That word weakness means scruples of conscience. Scruple of conscience. Do you know what the word scruple means? I mean, I've used the word. I kind of know what it means, but I had to look up the definition to make sure I understood it. But it's a, like a dilemma of conscience about moral things, about right or wrong, and a hesitancy of conscience. That's what a scruple is. So a scruple of conscience. So we have an obligation to bear up the scruple of conscience of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us, that's all of us, is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up or to build her up. For even Christ did not please Himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on Me. Jesus as the example. Verse 4, For whatever was written in the past, in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope. That's that confident expectation. Bible hope. Through endurance. That's patient continuance or constancy through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. Now verses 5 through 7 are the spirit of everything he's been teaching through chapter 14 and 15 up until now. It says, Now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus. Or you could say according to the law of Christ. What was the law of Christ? To love your neighbor as yourself. To live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that you may glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. Notice it says welcome one another. It does not say make each other conform to one another. It doesn't say conform to one another. It says welcome one another. It's up to them to come into one mind or not. You say, well, how is that relevant? I know that's not really a thing that you face maybe in this church. But in the churches I grew up in, conformity was a big, big thing. Everyone had to look the same, act the same, walk the same, talk the same. You know, I mean, there was rules for everything. What color of buttons you could have on your shirt. I mean, everything. Right? 
So conformity was a big, big, big thing. But conformity is not unity. You can be as different as night and day and be in unity and purpose and heart and soul and spirit. Verse 8, For I say that Christ became a circus. I really read that one wrong. Let's start over. Verse 8, For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers so that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore, now he, he, he makes this statement about Jesus came to confirm the promises of God to the Jews, to the fathers. That's why He came, to confirm the promises from long ago. Even though, like Jen read in Malachi and other places, how they repeatedly turned their back to the Lord again and again and again and again to the point of divorce. Right? I mean, to where God finally said, look, I've divorced you all. So bad, but yet, to keep His promise, He sends Jesus to confirm His promise. But it doesn't end there. Look at what He says next. So it includes them. He says, for as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee... I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. He is quoting from Second. Samuel 22, and in, from Psalms 18. And then again, it says in verse 10, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with His people. And that's a quote out of Deuteronomy 32. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise Him. That's out of Psalm 117. So we see that He came to confirm the promises to the Jews, but the Gentiles were included from those writings even long ago. And then in verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will hope in him. And that's found in Isaiah 11. Now, so he, he brought all this history. He's addressed all these things. He now makes this powerful statement. How many know when, what's the time frame that now applies to? Now, you guys are sharp. I saw a few people sleeping. I thought maybe you'd get that one wrong. But now, now is now. Now may the God of hope, or let's say it this way, the God of confident expectation, fill, not a dab, not a dab will do, fill, fill, full, fill you with all joy and peace. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace. Then the next phrase, as you believe. That part's important. Because if you don't believe it, none of it's true for you. As you believe so that you may overflow with hope. So it's not just full. It's running over with the stuff. Everything you, everyone that comes around you gets some of that contagious hope on them. And it is contagious. Have you ever felt down and out and someone that's full of confident expectation comes and, and ministers to you? And boy, boy, you, you get it on you, right? So that you may overflow with hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Power of the Holy Spirit. Worship team, you can come. Did you know that the Father has in His heart for you to live this kind of way? Full of joy, full of peace, believing, overflowing with this joy, with this peace, with this confidence. And out of that, 
Here's the thing, though. You know you don't find that at a particular place, at the church. You don't find that at church. Or you don't find that when you bump into one of those people that are that way. You may, but that's not where you should be going to find it on a daily basis. You find it in your intimacy with the Father, you and Him. You and Him. One-on-one. You and Him. As you spend time with Him, as you go sit in His presence, as you allow Him to, to get over onto you, and you become like Him, these things, that's when the power of the Holy Spirit becomes evident and the overflow of hope and joy and all these things become evident and it becomes contagious from people being around you. So don't look to come to the service to arrive at this, to to get this. Get this at home and bring it and just cause everyone that sat around you to get a load of it as well. Alright? Alright, stand with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and that you gave us this letter to the Roman church. Thank you for preserving it through the ages so that we can see today what your heart was, what your desire was, what you want to do, and how it belongs to us still today, these truths. Thank you, Father, that you would fill us with all joy, with peace, and with righteousness, and that it's not in things that we can taste or touch or smell, but Father, it's found in you and you alone. And so we invite you to minister by your Spirit in the power of your Spirit in every heart here in this place. And Father, that the words that were read and the things that were taught, that you would bring them to life on the inside of each one of us. That we might be molded and shaped like you. That we would find our strength in you. That our joy would be from you. That our peace would be directly from you. And I bless you for it. Thank you for doing this. And we just worship you in the mighty name of Jesus. Let's praise the name of Jesus. But before, before you do that, I want to give you some instruction. It's real easy to be distracted and to stand here and think about how you like the song and about what the people around you are doing and if they're dancing or not or if they're lifting their hands or not or, or you know what they're doing or what the kids are doing or blah, 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 blah. None of that matters. When you give praise to the Lord, it's from you to Him. You know, if you have to, shut your eyes and imagine Him there before you and just tell Him, just tell Him what you'd like to tell Him. Praise Him, worship Him, honor Him, be good to Him. All right, let's do that right now. Let's just worship Him. I worship you, Lord. Don't worry about what your neighbor's saying or doing. You just, between you and God, God, you are good. You are good to me. You've been good to my family. You've been good to our people, Lord. I worship you, Father. You're so good. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Jesus, you are the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I love you. I worship you. 
I belong to you, Father. I'm not my own. I belong to you. And, and have your way in me, Lord, in a ways that please you and glorify you. Father, lead me in your ways that you might be glorified and that you might be lifted up. Father, I worship you. Thank you for the miracles that I've seen. Thank you for the healings I've had. Thank you for the deliverance and for the, for the provision being made. Father, you truly are good. None can compare to you. You've created everything. You've made all the good things I see, all the good things I experience. And Lord, I bless you. I bless you. I bless you. I love you, Father. You're awesome. You're so good. Thank you for making me yours and for giving me your family name. Thank you for giving me a place with you, an inheritance. Thank you for giving us your spirit, your way of being, your way of thinking. Thank you for the mind of Christ. Someone say that right now. Thank you for the mind of Christ. I have the mind of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Glory to your name, Lord. Father, we invite you by your Spirit to continue to bring revelation and understanding to us so that we might walk in a way that lifts you up, lifts our brothers and sisters up to you, that we would just exemplify you everywhere that we go. Lord, in this Christmas season in particular, as we celebrate your birth and your death and resurrection and that you came to be with us, Father, help us keep to keep that the main thing this season. The main thing is 2022 ends and 2023 begins, Lord, that you are with us. That you've not left us, you've not forsaken us, that, but that you live amongst us and in us. And have your hand upon us. And we're going to go from faith to faith and glory to glory. Father, we're going to push in further in your ways. Our love for your word is growing ever stronger and increasing in us, Father. We want to be like you. We want to walk like you. We want to imitate you in all things. This is our desire, Father. So we just lay ourselves before you. Father, we open up our heart before you. And we say, come in. We usher you in your ways, your way of thinking, your way of being, your truth, your principle, your understanding, your wisdom, the redemption you've made available, all of it, Father. Let it flow into us, fill us up, overflow, and get on everyone around us. Isn't God awesome? He is awesome and He loves you. And He has His eye upon you. The Word talks about being the apple of His eye. Like, you... You know, if I had each one of you come up and stand here in the front, and I would take something and throw it at your eyes, just lightly, you know, just a little, like a, like a piece of popcorn, throw it at your eyes. 
you would duck, you would blink, you would bat it away. You would, it'd be amazing how you could protect your eyes. <laughs> yeah, you might open your mouth and catch it with your mouth and eat it. But the point is, is that you would protect, it's just an, a, a natural instinct that we have that's faster than, than we can even respond uh, logically. It's just a, an instinct we have to protect our eye. Well, that's how you are to the Lord, that He would protect you, that you're that special to Him, that just instinctively He goes to protect you, right? How many of you are thankful for that? that as the apple of his eye, that you're in his hand, that no one can remove move you from the Father's hand. Only you have the power to do that. And someone say, I'm staying. Hallelujah. Well, one way that we love God in this house is we love on one another and we build each other up. So make sure you do that at the end of the service. Everyone's invited downstairs to a time of fellowship. Good evening, everyone. Don't you just feel the love of God in this place? All the people, every one of you bring that love of God in with you. It's so beautiful. So I've got a little tidbit, a little something to think about this morning or this evening. Do you know in the whole Bible, not one time does the word of God give us a description about what Jesus looks like? Many titles, many names, many description of character. But even Judas in the garden, he says, the one I kiss. He doesn't describe Jesus. It's until Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Would you like to see what, he, what Jesus looks like? So beautiful. Thank you for saying yes. <laughs> So here's John in verse 10 of chapter 1, and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice saying, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. Now John had been almost 60 years since he had heard that voice. <sighs> Can you imagine? He knew that voice. And he turned and he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about with the chest of a gold band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as a sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth a two-edged sharp sword with his countenance was like the sun shining in all its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand on me and said, don't be afraid. 
I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to hell and death. Write these things which you have seen and the things which, which are and the things which will take place after this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So we have a picture now of what Jesus looks like, and now we have a pit. Now we know what he's doing. What he's doing is he's walking in the midst of the seven churches. He's walking in our midst tonight. And if you go on and read these first three chapters, he encourages, he instructs, he chastises, he rebukes, he inspects. He's speaking. He's doing a lot. Why? He's a good shepherd. He's a good head of the body. And he's here tonight. Amen? The word says he's walking in our midst. Well, we know that he inhabits the praises of his people, right? So let's all stand up together tonight, family. We have an opportunity to celebrate and honor the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We have, an, we have an opportunity tonight to intentionally keep our heart on him, to praise him, to worship him, because he's so worthy of our praise. Amen. we celebrate this time of year because one moment in time our Jesus King of Kings and Savior was born and we celebrate that moment that time and Father we're so grateful for the beautiful plan of salvation the plan of redemption that you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit planned long before the foundations of the earth and you included each one of us and you called us each by name and gathered together a family that would love you and serve you all the days of their life father thank you so much for jesus thank you jesus for the blood that you shed thank you for the living word that you are a book that you bound up that we can read and understand every day of our life Holy Spirit, we can't do it without you, without your instruction, your teaching, and your power. We're so grateful tonight as we stand together as family, celebrating Jesus, worshiping him, grateful, grateful heart for all he is and all he's done and all he's yet to do. Amen. Well, turn to your neighbor because one way we love God in this place is by loving one another. And just express your love to one another because this really is a loving family. Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to be with you all. You know, it's a privilege to come together like this. You know that? It's a privilege. 
And we should recognize one another as family and recognize that it's a privilege to have people that, you know, we all have a place. God's created a place for everybody. You know, there's lots of good people in this county. There's lots of good churches. But he's placed you here. This is your home church. He's placed you here. And um, so this is your family. You know that the enemy, he would want to separate you from that. Did you know that? He would want to separate you from the people God wants to hook you up with. He wants to separate you from the truth. And ultimately, he just wants to separate you from the purpose that God created you for. So we're not ignorant of his strategies, are we? So we're not going to give place to anything that would get us off course. Amen? Well, we're going to prepare to return the tithe. So if you need a cash envelope, raise your hand. If you're here for the very first time, we'd like to just welcome you. Anyone here for the first time, raise your hand so we can see who, who you are. Yes, I don't see any hands, so. Well, if you're giving by credit card, do fill out all of the blanks. That helps us a whole lot. How many know our God is a God of increase? He wants you and I to be abundantly blessed so that we can abound to every good work. And as we've been talking about, that he's given us laws or steps to increase, steps to prosperity that will work for everyone. If you'll, if you'll act on them, if you'll take them and believe them and act on them. And we talked about last week how the first step is to put God first, to honor him and honor him as first place, give him first place in our life. And we said how in Proverbs it tells us one way we can do that is with our stuff, with our wealth, with our increase, our yield, our income. That's one way. Well, I'm going to talk about tithing tonight. Because tithing is a big way that we demonstrate that God has first place. And it's a big, play, a big part of demonstrating that we honor God. But it's not just something that we do mechanically. It's not about just, you know, go through emotions, drop something in the, in the plate or in the basket. You know, he doesn't just want us to honor him. He wants us to want to honor him. It's not a mechanical thing. It should be a heart revelation. So when we return the tithe, we should be thinking, you know, God, you're first in my life. God, I'm honoring you. God, you're, you're my supply. You're my provision. Everything good in my life is from you, and I'm recognizing you as the source of all of that. So, so that's one of the heart revelations we're to have. One of the things that when we, when we tithe, we should be very intentional. And I'm belaboring that because when you do something on a regular occurrence, you can get, um, it, become, it can become habit if you're not intentional. And I want us to be intentional that when we write out that tithe check, when we put it in the basket, we're thinking, I'm honoring you, God. God, you're first in my life. All that I have and all that I am is for your purpose. Well, another revelation that we should have is that the tenth, the tithe, belongs to the Lord. You know, you have a decision to make if you're going to believe that or not. Do you believe that or not? That, that's, I mean, I'm not here to tell you what to believe. But we all have to decide it. We all have to decide which way of that we believe. Is it the Lord's or is it not? Does the tithe belong to him or 
or not. Because if it belongs to him and I use it for rent or I buy my kids something with it or I pay the electric bill with it and it belonged to him, then what did I just do? I robbed him. But if it doesn't belong to him, then no big deal. Big whoop de doo Spend it on whatever you want. So, but we don't mess around with it. We need to really answer it for ourselves. And I know there's a lot of, of young ones in here children in here, that you need to consider this too. And don't just take your parents' word for it. Don't take my word for it. Let's look at some scriptures. So I don't have all night. (laughs) Pastor says, thank goodness. Uh, So we're just going to three places. So go to Leviticus 27, go to Joshua 6, and put your finger in Malachi. And so we're looking at how does God view the tithe and is it his or is it not? And then if it is his, how, how big of a deal is it to him? So in Leviticus chapter 27, the Lord's talking to Moses, and he's laying out some different instructions. And let's see here. In verse, verse 28, it says, I was going to just read in verse 30, but it says in verse 28, But nothing that a person owns and devotes to the Lord, whether a human being or an animal, or family land may be sold or redeemed. Everything so devoted is most holy to the Lord. No person devoted to destruction may be ransomed. They are put to death. Uh, Verse 30, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So I brought that part out about being so devoted Um, He's talking about anything that the Lord considers devoted or holy to him. uh, It's to be set apart. So he's viewing that as his. Now, as you're flipping over to Joshua, uh, just a side note, if you're sitting here saying, well, yeah, but that's Old Testament, and we just sort of, you know, pass over those real fast. The thing is, is that the tithe was before the law. Tithe was implemented, or actually in the heart of Abraham, before the law. No one told him to tithe. That came out of a heart of honor. Yes, you find tithing in the law, and you find it after the law. Jesus told us we should tithe. The words of Jesus in Luke, I'm not going to turn there, but in Luke 11, uh, Jesus, he was chiding the Pharisees about how they were getting all religious about, you know, certain things and how you even tithe down to your herbs and things, but you're neglecting justice and the love of God. He says, now, don't neglect to do the tithe. It says, don't pass over the former, but do the other too, the love of God and, and mercy. So that was a perfect place. He could have said, now that was old covenant. I'm ushering in a new thing. And so, so, but he didn't say that. So that was, we're not, I wasn't going there. So Joshua 6, I wanted to point this out. So in Joshua 6, this is the second generation of Israelites that are now, they've crossed over the Jordan, and they're now coming into the promised land, right? So in, um, let's see, where was I at? Verse 17, they're, they're coming into this. They've been marching around Jericho, and it says in verse 17 here, they're going around that city seven times, and it says the city, Joshua's telling them, shout for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. 
Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things. Those are set apart things. Those are the Lord's things. Keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. I find it interesting that the Lord didn't say, you know, it'd be kind of nice if one of those cities when you're out there conquering that you would, you know, set one aside for me. You know, just if you, if you get around to it, if you think about it, one of those would be good or even the last one. No, it was the first that stands out to me right out of the gate. That first victory, that one was dedicated to the Lord. All right. Uh, in chapter 7, we know what happened. It says, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And we know what happened. They went out. They thought, okay, this is great. The Lord's with us. We don't need to send many. Um, we don't need to send the whole army to this next city. It's so small. So they just sent out a few thousand, and they totally whooped them. Totally. I mean, well, sent them fleeing. They didn't kill them all. They killed like 36 of them. But when the hearts of the Israelites melted in fear, and it says Joshua tore his clothes, fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and remained there all evening, till evening. I mean, he was smitten because he knew that the Lord was the reason they had this first victory and it's very, he's keenly aware the Lord's help has been withdrawn from them. And they are toast without him. So, verse 10. I mean, Joshua has this crying out to the Lord. He kind of says some things. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. Again, we're answering, we're answering the question, how does God view the things that he has said are his and set apart for him? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And go to Malachi. So, like I said, we're answering the question, what does God, what's his viewpoint on when he says something is his and devoted to him, it's a serious deal. He considers that when he says this is my portion, he means it. So in Malachi, just this is the last scripture we're going to go to, we know this is a book on honor. We know this is a book on the offerings of God, respect for God. And in the beginning chapter, he says, um, he talks in there about how, you know, if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my honor? And then um, in verse, or chapter 3, verse 6, the familiar scriptures, I'm going to read them. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees, and you have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? 
Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Now, that is also what was going on um, there in um, when the Israelites were coming, the story I just read in Joshua. I just want to point out that in Galatians 3, it tells us that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. So I don't believe that you're under curse, but neither are you positioned for this next uh, verse that we're going to read here. It says, bring in the whole tithe, the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the windows, the floodgates, I'm used to saying windows, (laughs) King James, of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That is profound. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So he wants to increase us. He wants us to want to honor him. And when we do, he says, I'll honor you, you know? Years ago, when we were in a financial collapse, this, I'm telling you, friends, this was the first step out of this hole that we found ourselves in, this intense lack. When we decided and got heart revelation on the tithe belonging to the Lord, and that, Lord, you are first, we are going to demonstrate it, we are going to honor you in this thing, and you're first. I don't care what. And, I mean, there were times where we didn't have enough money for anything, much less the little bit that had come in. But when we returned the tithe, I'm telling you, that was some of the first steps to bring us out of that pit. And, yeah, it took faith. It took, it's not like it happened overnight, that suddenly everything was just like Shazam, but but it was a walk of faith. And he was faithful, and he was our supply, and he brought us out of that. And as we honored him, he honored us, and he'll do it for you. So I guess you you have a decision to make. I'm not here to make that decision for you. And uh, if I'm preaching to the choir, I think I probably am. Let's preach together. Let's be the choir preaching together. (laughs) The Lord loves you, and he wants to see you flourishing in life. Amen. All right, well, let's pray over our tithe. Father, I thank you so much for your faithfulness. Lord, I thank you that you brought my family out. I thank you for your solid word that we could stand on. I thank you for being that supply that you promised to be. I thank you for throwing open the windows of heaven on our behalf, that we tested you in this and you were faithful. And I just give you praise for it, Lord. Thank you so much. And Lord, I thank you that you love your children here tonight. Lord, I ask that you meet whatever needs are in this body, that you meet it, that you, um, according to your riches and glory, which are endless. So we just present our tithes to you tonight as part of our worship and our honor to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. The ushers, you can pass the baskets and the people will give to the Lord. Okay, so a couple of things I'm going to mention in the bulletin next Sunday. 
uh, December 18th at 4 p.m. is our Christmas party. And last chance to sign up. Sign up is important so that we are prepared for you. And please bring two dishes. We are collecting Christmas cards in the back. So we will pass those out, help you pass those out. If you have Christmas cards for your church family here, you can put them in the box in the back lobby. Christmas Eve service is, of course, Christmas Eve at 4 p.m. So it's earlier. It is going to be a little bit shorter service and a special service that the children are preparing for us. So we're excited about that. Also, mark your calendars for the following weekend. So big point in your calendar, it won't be Saturday night. It's going to be Sunday morning. Sunday morning, so that's, that's why I say. So the Ethiopians requested to trade. So we're going to trade with them for this weekend only. So we're not setting a new precedent. We're not um, having it on Sunday mornings always. But it will be Sunday morning, January 1st, this once only. So mark your calendars. Okay, still collecting wool socks and gloves for those in need. That's going to CityGate. So we can be putting those in the box in the lobby. All right, Pastor, are you ready to come share what the Lord's given to you? Good evening. So everyone say 4 p.m. Not 4.05. Not 4.10. Although that is a good shotgun. Uh, if you know, you know. 4.10 is a shotgun. Um, but at 4 o'clock, Christmas Eve is when the service begins, not at 6. And then the next weekend, as Jen has already mentioned, um, instead of meeting Saturday night, it's going to be Sunday morning. So come out. Did we put a time in the bulletin for that? Um, come out in 10 a.m. All right, wonderful. Everyone say 10 a.m. January 1st. Amen. 2023 just sounds strange, doesn't it? So a few things um, before we go further. I wanted to go over a safety announcement and just bring you into uh, awareness on a protocol that we have. So if the room up here to your right, uh, my left, is what we commonly refer to as the green room. And we lock that door prior to the service so that no one can come through it. And we do that for safety reasons. That if someone were to come in, you know, we have a safety team here. We have someone down at the door, um, someone in the back, and many times someone here on the front row as well. But the reason we lock those doors is that someone that we don't know or someone that would mean us harm couldn't come through this door and be in the sanctuary all of a sudden. And so we lock the door to keep that from happening. Now, the, there's some exterior doors on the other side of the wall there as well, and those are supposed to always be locked during the service. So that we have one point of entry into the building, and it's down there at the front door. So in the event um, that you hear a knock on this door over here, you don't answer it. Okay? It doesn't matter if you saw me go into the room or someone else go into the room. Don't answer it. All right, they can go around, or if you want, um, we can send someone down through the basement up around to talk to them, because a locked door is easily overcome by a simple, if you'll answer it, 
All right? So safety, common sense, just don't answer the door if someone knocks. And um, that's why you'll see me a lot of times go into that room and put the kickstand on the door down so that it doesn't shut behind me so I can come back. All right. It's uh, ridiculous that we live in a time and age that we have to even have those kind of conversations. But the bottom line is this. We look first and foremost to the Lord, our protector. And then we also do everything that we know to do to act wisely and prudently.